Hallelujah. 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 Thank you very much. May you please be seated. That's a wave of friend. Yes. Just open your hearts for God's word in the name of Jesus. The spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. That we may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saint. Thank you, Jesus. You are the God who was, who is, and is to come. Jesus. Jesus. And in you I trust. You are the miracle working 
This blessed morning, our hearts are open unto you. We receive your anointing upon our minds and our heart in Jesus' name, and we receive the breaking forth of lights. Quicken our understanding by light and by revelation, even in Jesus' name. Blessed Holy Ghost, thank you for your mighty ministry, even in, in, the, in, the, in our presence, in the midst of us. Thank you that you are pervading, you are invading every heart, you are moving, and you are brooding. And your mighty works are made known. Thank you, dear Lord. In Jesus' name, the Son of God. Hallelujah. Can you please be seated? Hallelujah. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So at this Bible conference, we are dealing with 
the, the apostles' blueprint. Don't move the ancient landmarks. Apostles' apostles' blueprint. Do not move the ancient landmarks. Ancient landmarks. The apostles' blueprint. The ancient landmarks. The apostles' blueprint. Hallelujah. Praise God. Now, when we, when we go through the Bible in the New Testament, beginning from the book of Acts, we see the foundations the apostolic fathers laid for us. And some of the foundations the early church laid for us with the course of time, the church veered away from those foundations. And some of the solid truth the church was founded upon, after a while, the lapse of time, after a while, those truths got lost in the church. So this morning, we want to see how those blueprints, those original landmarks that the apostles laid for the church and are built upon the foundations of the apostles and the prophet, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So the original foundations they laid, the blueprints, we want to see what is not with us again and what we have actually deviated from, we want to see those original foundations so that we can begin to walk in the realities of it, of them. Hallelujah. I said, praise God. Hallelujah. Now, I want you to understand that the church, now, there are four stages of the church. There are four stages of the church. There is the formation of the church, the formation of the church, which began in 32 AD, 32 AD. The church that was born on the day of Pentecost was 32 AD. That's the formation of the church. Then there is the deformation of the church. Deformation of the church, which began in AD, AD 590. AD 590. Then there is the reformation of the church. Reformation. Reformation began in 1517. 1517. But the last stage of the church before rapture is the conformation of the church. The conformation of the church. The church will be conformed to all that God made the church to be before rapture. So we have the formation, the deformation, the reformation, the conformation. Hallelujah. I did these categories for you to have a panoramic view of the entire church age and how some of these foundations, the church veered from the original foundations. Hallelujah. Please, are you here or you are going home? All right. So, 
Now, the first hundred years of the church was powerful. But after, after the first hundred years, there was a kind of degradation of the church. There was a degradation of the church. You know, when the last apostle was no more, Apostle John, Apostle John had disciples like, um, like Polycap, Polycap, Arrhenius, powerful people, church history will tell us, and they held the, the battle. They took over the baton. It's wonderful. But getting to the 10th century of the church, the church began to degrade. Actually, by the time, by the 10th century of the church, even speaking of tongues, the emphasis of speaking of tongues was no more. How soon these relatives were quickly lost in the church. Even the speaking of tongues. In fact, by the time of great theologians like St. Augustine, the emphasis of spiritual gifts were no more. They, they held on to orthodoxy, sound biblical doctrine, but speaking of tongues was lost. Can you imagine? So what we're talking about is so amazing. The truth, some of these amazing tr truth were quickly lost just at the beginning. So, <laughs> no more speaking in, in tongues. They were not speaking in tongues again. As at 300 AD, 400 AD, it was no more. In fact, at the 4th century, there was a man by name Ephraim the Syrian. Ephraim the Syrian. He spoke in tongues. And people were shocked. And Ephraim the Syrian in the 4th century spoke in tongues. And they called it the harp of the spirit. They called it the harp of the spirit. Because it was just flowing in tongues. The harp of the spirit. So that it was individuals. But the emphasis was no more of, for, for the entire church as a body. It was no more. Then in the 12th century, a woman of God spoke in tongues. They called her Hildegard. Hildegard. She spoke in tongues and they called that the concept of the spirit. Then in the 18th century, the 18th century, the Moravians, the Moravian movement also speaking in tongues. They called it the evacuations of the spirit. Then, yeah, in the 18th century, the another movement in France, the Camisats, they were prophets. They also spoke in tongues. They called it the ecstasy of the spirit. Until 1901, then 1906, when the speaking of tongues was widespread in the entire body of Christ. That was when we had full restoration. But until then, it was individuals. That's amazing. That's amazing. Look, in the book of Acts, we see Paul's missionary movement. We see Paul's first missionary movement, Paul's second missionary movement, Paul's third missionary movement, his fourth missionary movement. We see missions and missionaries. And this was something the early church did. It was also lost. Worldwide evangelism and missions was lost. In fact, by the fourth century of the church, now by the, by the fourth century of the church, all the great Bible scholars were in Africa. The first Bible school was actually in Africa, North Africa. 
to all the great scholars like St. Augustine. St. Augustine was from North Africa. Origen, Arrhenius, Bishop Cyprian, Athanasius, Arius, all the great guys, they were all in Africa. So Africa, we've had Bible giant. <laughs> but the problem was that they were just disputing Bible doctrine and they refused to spread the gospel all around the world. And then after a while, North Africa was taken by Islamic Muslims because they refused to spread. So missions was no more. Until the 1700s and the 1800s, that God used a movement called the Moravians. If you've heard of the Moravian movement, the Moravians, yeah. The Moravians, it, it was pioneered by one young man. He was just 22 years of age when he began Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. If you've heard, heard of Count Zinzendorf, powerful man in Moravia, East Germany, and they began a mighty, mighty prayer chain that history tells us that they had an unbroken prayer chain movement for 100 years, constantly. It began with 48 people, unbroken prayer chain, and they released missionaries all around the world. They were the first movements to preach all around the world. After them came great missionaries. We heard of William Carey, Jackson Adoniram, David Livingston, all this great, great missionary movement. So it was also restored, but the church lost it at the beginning. So many things have been lost. Hallelujah. But that is why we are here. So we want to see some of the, we can't do everything. We want to just touch on some of the salient things that some of the things have been partially fulfilled. Yeah, almost everything is fulfilled, but we don't have strong emphasis on it. Hallelujah. Now, I spoke of the formation of the church, AD 3 to AD, then um, the deformation of the church. Actually, around the years 313 AD, 313 AD, there was, um, there was a powerful man by name Flavius Valerius Constantinus, popularly known as Constantine. And Constantine was going to fight with Maxentius to see who would take over the Roman Empire. And as he was preparing to fight the battle the next day, he had a dream, and in his dream, he saw a sign, the sign of the cross beyond the sun, and saw a writing, hog signo vences, in Latin, which means in the sign, conquer. So he woke up from his dream and realized that this sign must be the sign of the cross, the God of the Christians. So quickly he painted all his swords, all his shields with the sign of the cross and went for the battle the next day at Bridge Milvan and won against Maxentius and took over the, the emperorship of Rome. And as a result of that, he became so happy and converted to Christianity. And in his conversion, he made Christianity the official religion of Rome. Now, prior to Constantine, there has been systematic persecution of Christians. There have been great emperors who vowed to destroy every Christian on the face of the earth. And Christians were delivered to lions to be eaten by lions. Christians were crucified on the crosses. Christians were martyred, many of them. 
but during the time of Constantine, the persecution ceased and Christianity became widespread. It was a good thing, but something false also came out of it. The reason was that Christianity became the official religion of Rome. So much that now, if you are not a Christian, you can have no appointment in Rome. So now pagans were coming to church just to be identified with Christianity. They come with their gods. They come with their images just to be identified with the church so they can have positions. So the church became so powerful that the church was now persecuting the pagans. And it was amazing that now everything became institutional. So preachers were now paid from the state coffers. You see. And now how do you become a Christian? You become a Christian by being born into the Roman Empire, not by being born again. So the truth began shifting. It's like, like you, are, you are filling the form and they ask you religion and you write Christianity. Even unbelievers write Christianity. Whether born again or not, they write Christianity. That is how, where it started. So because Roman Empire was so powerful, Christianity began to spread. But the sincere, genuine Christianity, as was then, was mixed. Yeah, and later on, uh, there was a cult called, which began with Nimrod, called Ancient Babylonian Cult, that mixed up with Christianity. Yeah, that mixed up with Christianity. Um, and later on, so many things happened. The out of the eldership came from the bishop system. The bishop system came from the archbishop system, then the cardinal system, then the pope. By the time the pope came in, the pope became had both ecclesiastical and governmental power. The pope was the most feared person on earth at that time. <laughs> you see, and so many things happened, and um, Christianity began to change. Christianity began to change. A lot of things came into the church. Images came into the church. Uh-huh. A lot of so many things came to the church. Time will fail us to talk about so many things. That brought what was called the Dark Ages. Uh-huh. So much that all the truth that was laid by the apostles were lost, including salvation, including believing in Christ as your Savior. It was even gone. <laughs> That's how worse it was. Hallelujah. All right, let's go back to the book of Acts and see how some of the strong truth the blueprint, the foundations the apostles held, which today, though we know it, we don't have strong emphasis on them. Now, the first thing I want to talk about is the breaking of bread. We call it the communion. The breaking of bread. The breaking of bread. I'm telling you that, thank God for our times. So, you know, they, it is coming little by little. Yeah. But 20 years ago, it wasn't so much like that. But the early church had premium emphasis on communion, breaking of bread. Premium emphasis. In Acts 20, verse 7, the Bible says that upon the first day of the week, the disciples, know what they did? They met together to break bread. And Paul preached. Now, the first day of the week is Sunday. Can you imagine that the church just met together and the emphasis of meeting together was just to break bread. Break bread. Now, the term break bread is, is not eating jollof or eating banco and tilapia. 
Now, some people think, oh, let's, let's meet and break bread. They think of jollof rice. They think of, you know, garri and beans. That's not the term for breaking bread. <laughs> That's not the term for breaking bread. Now, the Bible said, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? 1 Corinthians 10 verse 16. So that's where we get the term breaking of bread. The Bible calls it the communion of the body of Christ. So breaking bread is actually the communion. It's a communion. So they did it every Sunday. Every Sunday, the church, the face of the week, they met together. Because the Lord Jesus himself said, do this in remembrance of me. That's his love language. That's his love language. Of all the things he said we should remember, he said, communion, do this in remembrance of me. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. We read 42 and 46. I want us to read Acts 2, 42 and 46. And they, this is from the story of the, uh, the day of Pentecost and how, the, how many were warned to Christ. And they, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. This is the communion. So can you imagine they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread. They continued. Now look at verse 46 and see something. And they continuing daily, say daily, with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and sungerness of heart. So this is what the early church did. They were breaking bread daily from house to house. You know what it means? If I come to visit you, the first thing we serve me is communion. Then we break it. We thank the Lord and we eat. Then from your house, I come to the house of the Mr. President. When I get there first, instead of serving me Don Simon and biscuit, the priority is communion cup and communion bread. So we break it. From there, we go to the secretary's house. When we get there, instead of, instead of first bringing us series and cake, the first thing she presents to us is the communion. That's what was done. That means in a day, you could take communion about five times. <laughs> Or six times. It was very, that is why, check the Bible, the early church, they were not getting sick. Check those who were, who were sick. Primarily it was non-believers who were getting sick. Understand this. The gifts of healings, in 1 Corinthians 12, when it, came to, when it came to healings, it is plural actually, the gift of not healing, healings. In fact, in the Greek, the gift is also plural. The gifts of healings. Now, the gifts of healings primarily is, primarily is for the world. But in a secondary sense, it's for the church. Have you realized that most of the healing anointing was exercised for those in the world to be healed? Check the Act of the Apostles and see. Of course, it's also for the church, but that is secondary. What God gave for us, for our healing and for our malfunction, is the communion. If we were to be on communion diet, I'm telling you, we would have worked in divine, not only in divine healing, divine health. But it was lost quickly. 
it was so lost that, I mean, it was lost and abused, the communion. It was lost and abused. It began in the ninth century of the church. A man by the name Rat Betus, he bought what was called, called transubstantiation. Hmm. Another man came, Ratramnus, concerning the communion. He also propagated St. Augustine's theory. Radbertus says that when you take the communion, you are literally drinking the very blood of Jesus and you are eating literally his body. But St. Augustine's doctrine says that the bread and the wine are symbolic, but the invisible presence of Jesus is just behind it. So there were so many controversies about communion. In fact, some of the reformers like Ulrich Zwingli and Martin Luther came together. Zwingli was a Swiss reformer, Swiss reformer, and Luther was a German reformer. They came together. They analyzed their doctrines. They agreed on 14 doctrines. The last one, they couldn't agree. That was on communion, so they parted. <laughs> In 1545, at the Council of Trent, <laughs> the communion... <laughs> At the Council of Trent, it was said that the communion, communion could be worshipped. The communion could be worshipped. Can you imagine? So, so many the devil attacked communion. And one of the worst things that came was how 1 Corinthians 11, verse 29 and 30 was misinterpreted. That is what made people leave the communion. That is why many, so many sicknesses, so many deaths premature death in a church is the result of we don't knowing what the communion is. We don't knowing what the communion is. Okay, let's go to 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 29. Now this verse was a verse that was misinterpreted during church history and that made many afraid and many to leave the communion. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the lost body. So if I can drink damnation to myself, why should I even go and attempt drinking communion? Let me sit my somewhere. Do you understand? Let me sit my somewhere and concentrate. Because how do I know if I have sinned? <laughs> and I go and take the communion and I drink that damnation. Uh -huh. So why don't so this has been the mindset of many because of this verse. So the communion is the holiest thing the Lord left us. So holy. One of the holiest things that was left us. But look at what the Bible said. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily. Now what does it mean to drink or to eat unworthily? Now the Bible is not saying that you are unworthy. He's not addressing the person who is drinking. That the person is unworthy. Stand. Now, unworthily, we know that the word unworthily is an adverb. True or false? How many of you remember what an adverb is? <laughs> we know that an adverb modifies a verb. True or false? Okay. Now, for he, what is he? He is not a verb. He is a pronoun. Right? He is a pronoun. 
What about eat, eating and drinking? Eat, eateth is a verb. And drinketh is what? A verb. And unworthily is an adverb. Now, an adverb does not modify the pronoun. An adverb modifies the verb. So, unworthily has nothing to do with the he. It has nothing to do with the he. So, he's not saying that the person is unworthy. No. He's talking about the eating and the drinking. He's talking about the manner in which he is eating and the manner in which he is drinking. He must do it reverentially. He must do it appropriately. He must do it discerning the Lord's body. That is what he must do. If you take your time and read the whole chapter, the Corinthians, you know what they were doing? They would come to church and instead of eating at home, they were using the communion to quench their stomach, their hunger. How can you discern the lost body when you take the bread? You can't discern the lost body. You, you are just, you know, you are just. So they were just eating and they, they couldn't wait for each other to come. So when they go and the bread is there, they'll just attack the bread, break the bread and start drinking it. So, so by so doing, they are not discerning the lost body. Praise the Lord. He's not saying they are unworthy. After all, we were, we're all unworthy, but the blood of Jesus has made us all worthy. Yeah. <laughs> Hallelujah. Yeah, the blood has made us all worthy. Our stand before the Lord has nothing to do with our works. It has all to do with him. Him. So the manner, he's talking about how it is done. And what does it mean to eat unworthily or to drink unworthily? Not discerning the lost body. That means that you take it as an ordinary bread you are eating. You shouldn't take it as an ordinary bread. When you do that, you know what will happen. Your sickness is retained. Nothing happens to you. But as you break it, just see that Jesus' body was broken for you. Just see that all your sicknesses was on him. When he was caged, he took your place in judgment. And all your cares, all your judgment, all your sicknesses, disease, just on him. So as you just see it as you break it. Hallelujah. And you take the, the wine, you drink it because your sins have been forgiven. What people do is that when they take the communion, they, make, they use the communion for intercession and supplication. That's also wrong. The communion is eucharistic. It is celebratory. Whenever Jesus took it, he gave thanks. The Bible calls it the cup of blessings. You take it, it's just thanksgiving. You take the cup because your sins are forgiven. You break the bread because your, your sickness and diseases has been taken away by Jesus. In a joyous mood, you drink it. Hallelujah. That is as simple as it is. Look at verse 30. Let's see verse 30. For this cause. Let's see verse 30, please. For this cause, many are weak, sickly among you, and many sleep. You know what it means? I give you medicine. So you have malaria. Now give medicine. Drink it. You so say you wouldn't drink it. What will happen? So it's a form of speech. Not drinking it is drinking. How do you call it? When you drink it, you have drunk health. But not drinking it, it's like you are still under that judgment of pain. Uh -huh. So now, the reason why people are not healed, the reason for weakness in the church is because people are not taking communion. The reason many are sick is because they are not taking communion. 
The reason many have died prematurely in the church, they are dying at 30 and 40 and 50. He says, for this cause, not for this reason, this specific reason. So he's telling us that the one reason why people are weak, sick, and are dying in the church. Brethren, this is powerful. My family, we take communion every day because I found in the Bible that they took it every day. Hallelujah. After every morning devotion, we, take, we have taken communion today. And it's powerful. Divine health. This thing is real. It's, it's so, there was this guy who had brain tumor. He heard about communion as he was taking it. He just took the communion. He just felt a, a, a metallic plate inside his mouth. He just brought it out and everything was gone. Metallic plate. Communion. There is this woman. He had a, she heard about a communion and she, you know, she couldn't really believe and, and her daughter was not sleeping. By night, night after night, she would just sleep an hour and wake up. After taking, giving her communion, one year old baby, the baby instantly put live ant. <laughs> live ant. Another instance, the baby put two live, two human years. <laughs> there are wickedness in this world. <laughs> it's powerful. Hallelujah. Yeah, so you take it. It is called a cup of blessing. Why? It neutralizes every case. It is called a bread of life. Why? It destroys every death in your body. The more you eat, the more your body comes alive. You see, com the communion is <laughs> anti-aging, anti divine antibiotic. <laughs> it is a divine inoculation. The more you take it, the more fresher you become. <laughs> the more you take it, the more your youth is renewed like that of the eagles. <laughs> Remember, during the Passover in Egypt, the first Passover in Egypt, the Bible says that he brought them forth out with the silver and with the gold. And there was not one feeble person among all their tribes. Now, in the Hebrew, none of them had a feeble feet. They had no feeble feet. So the old women were running, and the old men were running. Nobody was on a stretcher when they were coming out of Egypt. Both grandmas and grandpas were just walking joyously, coming out of Egypt. Why? Because they took the communion in type, in a shadow, before they, they left Egypt. And if the shadow and the type can strengthen and can revive and can equip and energize them this way, how much more the true, the antitype and the substance? Hallelujah. If you take communion out of revelation and out of light, something begins to happen to your mortal body. Your mortal body will, will revitalize will be quickened. You begin to walk not in healing but in divine health. I'm telling you. Hallelujah. It's powerful. So they were doing it. We do it. Some churches do it once a month. What? It, you know, it's, it's, this truth was so lost that communion was then administered only by priests. But in the Bible it was done from house to house. Why? Because we are all priests. We are all priests. We are all royal priesthood. So you can bless communion in your house and take it yourself. Listen, before you consider ice as spring or any painkiller, take the communion. 
because that is the eternal prescription of the, of the great physician for your malady and malfunction. Take the communion first and bless it. Hallelujah. Praise God. So, this is one of the grounds that apostles held on daily. Because the more you do it, the more, oh Jesus, you see his death. You see his death. You see his death. You do it in remembrance of him. Wow. All right. Number two. Number two. All right. So the communion was quickly lost. But the second thing that was lost is, how do I call it? Loving his appearing. Loving his appearing. The consciousness, the early church, I'm telling you, they live in full expectation and anticipation of the coming of the Lord. That's how they lived. I'm so surprised that they are the, that's the, early, the earliest people, the early church, but they expected the Lord's coming more than we who are closer to his coming. Yeah, it's so amazing. If you read the Bible, you see it. They expected the Lord's coming every day. But we who are closer, now it's our Paul said, now it's our salvation nearer than when we believed. He could say that 2,000 years ago. <laughs> I wonder what we must see now. <laughs> A friend of mine years ago said, the Bible says the Lord is at hand, but now we can say the Lord is at finger. <laughs> Hallelujah. Listen. The Bible says that if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. You know, the name maranatha or the term maranatha is an Aramaic word or a Syriac, Syriac word, Aramaic, Aramaic word, which literally means he comes. He comes. Now, in the early church, that was their greeting. In the early, early church, because of persecution and because false brethren were all around them, that was the secret code by which they used to, to identify sincere and genuine believers. So when I meet a believer and I say, Maranatha, and you go like, what? Then I know you are not part of us. <laughs> but when I meet you and I, I just whisper, Maranatha, then you, you also respond, he comes. Maranatha, then you respond, he comes. Maranatha, then you respond, he comes. That was their greeting. And that is how they identified the genuine believers. Maranatha, can I tell your neighbor Maranatha? And, and respond. And tell him or her you are a genuine believer. You are a genuine believer because you have responded well. He comes. Listen, the coming of our Lord is the hope of the church. And you just read the Bible, the New Testament, you just see it. You just see it. Listen, there are 27 chapters and books in the New Testament. 23 books addresses the coming of the Lord. 23 books addresses the coming of the Lord. And that's the hope of the church. Looking for that blessed hope. And the glorious appearing of the great God. And our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the hope of the church. 
The Bible says, The blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord, unto an inheritance uncorruptible, undefiled, that faded not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. First Peter 1, verse 3. So our hope is a blessed hope, according to Titus 1, 11 to 14, it's a blessed hope, it's a living hope. Now the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. 2 Timothy 2.16 calls it good hope. The hope we have is a blessed hope, it's a living hope, it is a good hope. And that is what the early church held on. The hope, hope, look at their language, look at the, the, the epistles. Whatever they spoke about, they linked almost everything to the Lord's coming. Almost everything. The Bible says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. It doth not yet, yet appear unto us what we shall be, but we know that when it shall appear, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. And every man that has this hope in him purified himself even as he is pure. So the thing is that, you see, the solution to the purity problem is in expecting the Lord's coming. When we live in anticipation of his coming, we live pure. Because the Bible says that every man that has this hope in him, what does he do? He purifies himself even as he's pure. That is it. <laughs> that is it. So the hope is a sanctifying hope. It is a sanctifying hope. Haven't you read? But when people begin to say, oh, the Lord is delaying, when people are living not in the consciousness of his coming, all the, our problems come like that. Look at Mount Sinai. When they said, after this Moses, he has delayed. You know what they did? The result was the golden calf. When they said Moses had delayed, the, the result was the golden calf. There was no hope. When we say our Lord has delayed, the result is idols. First John 5.21, little children, keep yourself from idols. What about Luke 12, verse 45? The servants who began to say, our Lord has delayed. They took other servants and they began to beat them and they began to eat and to drink. <laughs> that is the result of saying the Lord has delayed. Even in ministry and in service, we don't do it well. We don't do it sincerely and genuinely. Oh, but that was the hope of the early church. That's the hope. Not only they, but ourselves also. Even we who have the first fruit of the Spirit, we do groan in ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wait the redemption of our bodies. For we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. But what a, for what a man seeth, why then does he hope for it? But if we wait for that, if we wait for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. The hope. They anticipated his coming. They loved his appearing. They loved his appearing. The thing is this. Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 4 verse 8 that henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give unto me and not to me only but to all them that love his appearing. There is a crown of righteousness the Lord will give to those who love his appearing in every age. Now listen. Waiting for Jesus' coming is a, 
is the love, must be the love life of the believer. God ordained that in every age we have to wait for his coming, whether he's coming in that age or not. In every generation, the believer's present, present must expect the Lord's coming as though he's coming in that age, whether he's coming in that age or not. Because the expectation of his coming is actually our love life. As it is written, the Bible says, since the beginning of the world, eyes has not seen, nor ear heard, neither has the heart perceived, that beside thee, O God, what you have prepared for him that waiteth for him. <laughs> That's Isaiah 64's version of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So now, I'm telling you, the early church expected his coming. He waited. Even when they were operating in spiritual, spiritual gifts. Even like the gifts of healings, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, prophecy. They did all that in the light of his coming. In all things ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you. So that ye came in behind no gift waiting for the coming of Christ. Now 1 Corinthians 1, 5-7. He says that they came in behind no gifts. So the Corinthian church, they had all the gifts manifesting. They came in behind no gifts. 6 and 7. 1, 5 to 7. 1 Corinthians 1, 5 to 7. Let's read verse 6. That in everything, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you, or in you, so that ye came in behind no gifts, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? So even the exercise of the gifts was is to prepare the church for his coming. They were mindful about his coming. And this I pray that your love will abound yet more and more in all knowledge and in all judgment that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Philippians 1.11 praying for them. Everything has to do with Christ. Sincere and offense to the day of Christ. And may the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God that your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians 5.25 So everything they said, read the Bible and see. They just waited for his coming. For his coming. For his coming. And you who are troubled, Rest with us. When the Lord shall appear from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that obey not God and that believe not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Thessalonians 1 verse 7. And you who are troubled, rest with us. It's amazing. He was even... Look at what Paul was saying. And you who are troubled, rest with us. The word trouble here is the teplesis. is the word for tribulation. Is now the places is when they lay you back on the floor and a huge rock is rolled to hit you and to crash you. The word means to crash, to squeeze and to squash, <laughs> to be crushed. That's the word for trouble here. And look at what he's saying. And you who are troubled, rest with us because apostles were arrested, they were in the lost rest, though they were in trouble. Then, what is the encouragement of their present trial when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven? Can you imagine? But was Jesus coming at their time? <laughs> but
But why do you encourage them with the coming of the Lord in their present trials? That's amazing. That's how they lived. Now, in Ephesians 6, the Bible speaks of and take, take the helmet of salvation. So the helmet of salvation. Ephesians 6, verse 17. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The helmet of salvation. What is the helmet of salvation? Many people have their heads exposed. So the devil is just hitting their head. He's just hitting their head. What is the helmet of salvation? Now, it is better explained in Thessalonians. Let us who of the day be sober, putting on the, the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. First Thessalonians 5, 8 and 9. Verse 8, for an helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, the helmet is not present salvation. It's the hope of salvation. <laughs> hope is futuristic. It's the assurance and the security of salvation that the Lord is coming for us. You have no helmet, your head is exposed. All sorts of thoughts hit you. They expected his coming. Now, assuming that I used to say that um, you are going to have a wedding and your beloved is in the UK and uh, he calls you and tells you that, oh, he can't wait for the wedding to come because you are planning to have the wedding in December. And whenever he calls you, your mind is far away from wedding. Whenever the matter concerning wedding comes up, you are downcast, you are discouraged. If you were the guy, what will you do? You better postpone it until you are ready. Yeah, because a bride rejoices mostly, rejoices more than the groom. Because the wedding is, I like the way you are smiling. It means your wedding is coming on very soon. <laughs> Hallelujah. God is good. In the same way, we are anticipating the wedding day. That's how the early church lived. In the hope of his coming. They lived in anticipation to his coming. Behold, he cometh with, with clouds, and every eye shall see him. They live in anticipation of his coming. We beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or troubled in spirit, as that the day of Christ is at hand. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 1. The entire New Testament is replete with the hope of the Lord's coming. And that is what was lost. Let me show you how it was lost. It was lost in history. Now, the early church believed. Now, there was a belief. Now, if you read ancient writings, the early church believed that Christ will come after 6,000 years. That's what they believed. In fact, it's in ancient writings like the, the Epistle of Barnabas and some of those old, old writings. They believe that that was their belief. They believe that the seventh, the seventh, the seventh thousand year will be the sabbatical year, the millennium. So they, they, there were so many writings about yeah, the early church. They believe that six, when, when the age gets to 6,000, the Lord will come. 
Can you imagine? 4,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, that's what they believed. And um, there was a man by name Hippolytus. Now, Hippolytus was a student of Arrhenius. If you know, if you know Arrhenius, he was a scholar. He was a great scholar around the, yeah, the second and the third century of the church. And this man, Hippolytus, miscalculated the ages, sorry, the years from Adam to Christ. You know, from Adam to Christ is how many years? 4,000 years. And from Christ to our time is 2,000 years. So Hippolytus used the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a Greek version of the Old Testament Hebrew and miscalculated the years and said that from Adam to Christ was 5,500 years. And in his day, he began to preach that it was left with, with 500 years and Christ will come. He began to preach that it was left with 500 years and, and the millennium will begin. <laughs> so he preached and preached and um, and those who came after him began to allegorize the scriptures. So they all began to believe. Because at the time he prophesied, the Roman Empire also began to decline. So it's almost like things were conforming to his prophecy. So when the supposed 6,000th year came, which was not, Nothing happened. Christ didn't come. So you know what happened. Now the theologians began to not allegorize the scriptures. And they now began to teach a kind of amillennial concept and postmillennial concept. They began to teach that Jesus was not coming literally on earth. Christ wasn't coming literally, literally on earth. Now this is very, follow me carefully. Christ wasn't coming literally on, on earth. So they on earth were supposed to set the millennial kingdom on earth. And Christ was going to reign through us. He wasn't going to come physically, literally. So that's what began to happen. So the Holy Roman Empire believed that they were those sanctioned by God to set the millennium, the kingdom age, the thousand year reign on with Christ. That is yet to happen. They believed that they were those called to set forth that reign on earth. So the whole Roman Empire, actually, they also reigned almost for a thousand years. <laughs> but it didn't work. At a time, Muhammad distracted their plan. <laughs> then the, the text, Ottoman, also disturbed their plan. So when Ottoman and the text came, they also believed that they were those to set the millennium on earth. It didn't work. Then the traditional European Christians also believed that they were those to set the millennium on earth. It didn't work. Then the Brit British Empire believed that they were those caught by God to set the, the empire on earth, the, the millennium on earth. After the British, they believed they, they were the ones because they were pioneering the gospel at that time, sending for missionaries to the world at that time. And they believed Brit-ish. The name Brit, British is two words put together. Brit is a Hebrew for covenant. And ish is the Hebrew for man. So British is the man in covenant with God. So they believe that they descended, they, were, they, they are kind of descendant from the Jews and they were those called to set the kingdom on earth and it didn't come to pass. Then the new world, Americans also now believe that they were those called to set the kingdom on earth, literally. In 1912, a prophecy came called the Manifest Destiny Prophecy in America. And the prophecy came that the Zion of God, the paradise of God, was about arriving in America. 
Literally, the new Jerusalem was about to manifest in America. Can you imagine? <laughs> so many things have come. And um, <laughs> so America, and they were thriving. Things were becoming well until there was, a, there was a civil war. And they knew that in the millennium, there shall be no war. We shall beat our swords our source into plowshares <laughs> and our spears into pruning hooks. So, but there was war. So I'm telling you, for and this span for this is about I'm talking about thousand thousand years. So for thousand years, the coming of Christ was never preached. Brethren, I'm from the early church. Now I'm talking about the third, the fourth century of the church. The coming of Christ ceased to be preached until late 1800s. Until. <laughs> Let people like D.L. Moody and Charles Finney and um, Torrey, these guys realize that no, there is no literal kingdom without a literal king. And that is where illuminations began. That God raised the brethren movement and they began to see that no, the church has made a solid mistake. We are trying to set the kingdom on earth without a king. So brethren is just 100 or late 1800 to 1900 that the coming of Christ began to be preached. Hallelujah. And even now, we don't live in the consciousness of it again. But very soon it's going to happen. Very soon it's going to hit the church big time. Because we have to be awakened that our citizenship is not here. We have to be awakened that we are strangers and pilgrims on earth. We have to just be awakened. That is not where we come from. As strangers and pilgrims, abstained from fleshly lust that war against the soul. Against, against the soul. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons, judgeth every man according to his works, then pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. First Peter 1.17 So we don't belong here. These all died in the faith and not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. They were persuaded of them. Hey, and they, conf and they embraced them and they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country which is unheavenly. Therefore, God is not ashamed to, call them, to be called their God, for he has prepared unto, the, unto them a city. Brethren, so that kind of consciousness when you are in love, listen, the expectation of his coming is the acid test for your love for him. I'm telling you. If you love to see him, you just can't wait to see his face. You just can't wait to see him. So John will say, even so, come Lord Jesus. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that hear it say, come. And let him that is a test, let him take of the fountains of waters. Let him drink of the water of, of water of life freely. Hallelujah. Praise God. So we need to walk in this reality. This is so powerful. Jesus wants to come being ex expected. He wants to come to a bride who expects him. A bride that desires him. Hallelujah. Alright, the next thing. Number three. I believe must be restored. 
is reading the Bible. Hallelujah. <laughs> reading the Bible. Why do I say that? The way we read, we read the Bible is a little different from the way the early apostles read the Bible, the early church. Let me show you why. Now, the early church, in meetings, they read the Bible publicly. For instance, you all be seated and we'll take chapters and we'll just be reading for your hearing. Just be reading for your hearing. So Paul told, told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 verse 13, till I come, give attendance, attendance to reading, to exhortation and to doctrine. So give attendance. So they sat down and they listened. They listened. While the word was being read, now, this was done publicly, but not just publicly, but privately also. Act 8, verse 30. Do you remember the Ethiopian Enoch? Let's read and see Act 8, 30. Philip ran thither to him, the Ethiopian Enoch, and had, and had him read. Now, he had him read the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? Let me give another, another proof. James 1 verse 25. James 1 25. Let's read James 1 25. Look at it carefully. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty. Now what is the perfect law of liberty? The Bible. That the Bible is called the perfect law of liberty. The Bible says that whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty. That means the one who is looking into the Bible. Okay. The New Testament, specifically here, and continue it. The person continues therein. So you continue in the Bible. Look at what he said again. And being not a forgetful hearer. Now he's talking about looking with your eyes. That he switches to hearing. That means that you know what they did? As they looked with their eyes, they read it audibly for them to hear it what they are reading. You understand? Uh -huh. So you are looking with your eyes, but you speak it up. So they read the Bible. Understand that faith does not come by reading. Faith comes by hearing. The Bible never said faith comes by reading and reading the word of God. It says faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of God. I'm telling you, either you hear from a preacher or you hear from yourself. Now, when you read the Bible with your eyes, one sense is activated, the sense of sight. But when you see and speak out, another sense is activated, the sense, the sense of hearing. <laughs> Hallelujah. And there are some spiritual dynamics that is, you know, so many happen. The Bible says, God has spoken once, yea, twice have I heard that power belongeth unto God. That is why the word of God in your mind is never enough. Faith, is, faith never comes when, when the word is unspoken, there is no faith. When the word is unspoken, faith is not active. That's why they kept speaking the word. They read and they speak. So you need to learn how to 
read aloud and how to speak the word of God aloud, even in your situations. Hallelujah. Yeah, it comes by hearing. Because you look, but you're not a forgetful hearer. So as you are looking, you are speaking it. The effect on your senses is greater than just reading. And the activation of faith, faith is released more in speaking, more than reading. You can't say I have faith in my thoughts. No, faith, faith is better. You can't say that. <laughs> Hallelujah. Praise God. All right. The next thing I believe that the church veered off. Now let me talk about the message, the apostolic message. The message the apostles had. Now the, the, the apostles specialized on preaching about Jesus, Jesus Christ. That was their specialization. It was all about a person and his work. A person and his work. But you need light into who he is, into his fullness, so you can preach about him and be delighted in preaching about him. The Bible said, and daily in the temple and in every house, they cease not to preach and to teach Jesus Christ. Act 5 verse 42. And daily in the temple and in every house, they cease not. So what they preached, they were teaching and preaching Jesus Christ. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and we your servants for Jesus' sake. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5. Now, we preach ourselves, but Paul says we don't preach ourselves. We, we are not the center of attraction, but we preach. We are your servants, and the one we preach is Jesus Christ. I'm quoting from King James, not New King James. You can give me King James, please. And I, brethren, came not with excellency of speech, declaring unto you the testimony of God. I determined to know nothing among you, save Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1 and 2. So he said, I determined to know nothing among you, save Christ and him crucified. Amazing. So the message was about Jesus. That's all we need. That's all we need. Yeah. Because he's the testimony of God. He's the fullness of God. He's everything. Jesus. So they spoke about him. They spoke about his glory. His essential glory. His moral glory. His official glory. His acquired glory. They spoke about him. They revealed his deity in his essential glory. They revealed his humanity in his moral glory. They revealed his official glory, his offices. They revealed his acquired glory, his exaltation. All about Jesus. They just spoke about him. Spoke about him. Hallelujah. Listen, the apostles, listen, the emphasis of their message was on what Christ has done. Our emphasis is on what we must do. That's why we, why we are not having a result. <laughs> we emphasize, emphasize on what we must do. Yeah. But they emphasized on what he has done. Of course, they spoke about what we must do. But you see, Paul, the writes, he's so skillful. 
he always speaks and presents first our position in Christ before he presents the injunctions and the imperatives. So, for instance, Ephesians 1, 2, he, he speaks of our wealth, the riches, who we are in Christ, and what he has done for us. And he just reveals that by the time we get to 4, 5, 6, he's talking about what we must do on the basis of who we are. So he speaks about we sit in first, before we walk, before we stand. You can't walk properly until you sit properly. Christianity begins with sitting. So in Ephesians, he starts with sitting. We are first seated with Christ. It's, it's a position of rest. It's what he has done. It's about his son. It's not about you. <laughs> Hallelujah. And it's about application and appropriating what he has done in, in his redemptive work on your daily lives. So it is he first and drawing from him and manifesting it practically in your daily life. That's how they preached. Hallelujah. The gospel that they preached is so amazing. Our gospel is kind of mixture. But a gospel... Now, the restoration of the gospel began with Martin Luther. Because I'm telling you, for a thousand years, the gospel was gone. If you know a little about church history, it was gone. How do you look for forgiveness of sins? Everything was gone. Luther was hungry, looking for forgiveness of sins. He was traveling from city to city, country to country, looking to be forgiven of his sins. They told him that if you go to Rome from Germany and you climb the stair, the five stairs of the Pope, and the Pope throws his scepter and you're able to touch it, all your sins will be forgiven. So that's what he taught. Listen, all the, there was no Bible at that time. There was no Bible. Now you have Bibles on your phones. I said, show me your Bible, and you raise your phone. There was no, haven't you heard about the, about the Inquisition? You couldn't read it. There was no Bible. If they see you with the Bible, they will kill you and bury you. Sometimes they will bury you alive, or they will drown you alive in the sea. The Inquisition. It was said that only the Pope had a right to explain the Bible because the Bible is a mystery. And he being the vicar of Christ, he could decode the mysterious code on the Bible. So only he had the access to the Bible. Even the priesthood didn't, didn't even have access to the Bible. So you can imagine. So Luther was a, a monk, was a priest, but he was hungry looking for forgiveness of sins. And they were told to make penance. You know penance? When you sin, you either put yourself in a dungeon or you take a sharp knife and cut your skin to feel the pain. You have to atone for your own sins. <laughs> you understand? Luther was walking on broken glasses, bare hands and bare feet so that he could atone for his sins. He was making penance. One day, he was always confessing his sins. One day, he went to the priest to confess his sins. He would sit in the snow. In the, in the snow, he would sit in the snow and confess his sins for God to see how much he is suffering. So God could have mercy on him. You see. <laughs> One day he went to the priest. He would go to the priest and confess. He confessed after five hours. Can you imagine? After five hours, the priest said, Say, go home. If you have a more obvious son, if you have a more obvious sons, come and confess. <laughs> 
He had a sensitive conscience. So, until he began to see, he saw the light in 1517. He found an old Bible in an old library and began to read. And God gave him light. Now, the main clause of the content of the New Testament is about forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is a major part, key with our redemption. Now, open to Hebrews chapter 8 and let me show you something. Hebrews 8. Okay. Now let's go to, let's start from verse 8. For finding, finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded, I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. Now this is it. I will put my laws into their mind and I will write them in their heart and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. In the, in the Hebrew, in, in the Greek, it's not for. It's because. The word here is not for in the Greek. Because. Now, there are different clauses in the, New, in the New Testament, in the content of the New Testament package. He says he will put his law in our heart. He will write them. We shall know the Lord from the least, of, from the least even to the greatest. We shall all know the, the, Lord, the Lord. God will be our God and all that. Now, he is going to do all this in the New Testament era. Why? Now, this is the main clause of the entire contents of the New Testament package. He says, because I will do all that I will do in the New Testament, because I'll be merciful to the unrighteousness. Now, the word merciful here is not the word mercy. It's the word propitious. I'll be propitious. I'll come propitious to their unrighteousness and their sins and iniquities will I, will I remember no more. So, there's a double negation in the Greek for the word no more. It's a double. It's the strongest negation or assertion is in this verse. There are a few verses like that. I will remember no more. You know what it says? No, not again. I will by no means remember. <laughs> it's the strongest negation in the Greek. He will not. Now, understand this. Forgiveness of sins is so important. Forgiveness is the mother of all blessings in the New Testament. That's why you take the communion, the cup of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Why? Once our sins are remitted, that all the blessings the testator left us, we can enjoy them. Because Christ never died in testate. He died a testator. And all the blessings of the testament is given us when our sins are gone. <laughs> and our sins are truly gone. So it's very important. Now, when you read 2 Peter 1, the reason why many believers cannot bear fruit is because they have forgotten that they have been purged from their old sins. 
the reason for many, many barrenness, spiritual barrenness and unfruitfulness is because we have forgotten that we have been purged from our old sons. So this is very paramount. Ephesians 1.7, in whom we have redemption through his blood. What is that redemption? The forgiveness of sins. According to the riches of his grace. So the whole redemption is now defined as the forgiveness of sins. In whom we have redemption through his blood. And what is that redemption? The forgiveness of sins. So the forgiveness of sins is used in opposition with in whom we have redemption through his blood. Remember on the, uh, on when the gospel was first preached to the Gentiles, to one Italian by name Cornelius, the first Gentile to come when the gospel entered into Europe. Peter was just speaking, speaking, speaking. The Holy Ghost was just waiting for him to touch the main thing. <laughs> he, he, the moment Peter touched on forgiveness of sins, the Holy Ghost fell on them and they began speaking in tongues. Read and see. <laughs> the Holy Ghost was saying, Peter, be fast, be fast, be fast. Touch on the main redemptive work. The moment he mentioned forgiveness, the Holy Ghost fell. And they began to speak in tongues. Amazing. Haven't you read Romans 4, 7 and 8? Blessed is the man unto whom whose iniquity is covered. And blessed is the man unto whom the Lord will not impute sin. Now, Romans 4, 7 is quoted from Psalm 32. Blessed is the man whose transgressions are covered. Paul was quoting Psalm 32. Blessed is the man whose. Now, when you read in the Hebrew, it says, Oh, the blessednesses. <laughs> oh, the blessednesses of the one whose transgression is forgiven. What it means is that there are manifold blessings that comes when your transgression is forgiven. <laughs> Hallelujah. And this is a major, major, major. Men must know this is what the gospel offers. Very important. Hallelujah. Praise God. Remember Luther. You know Martin Luther, during the Reformation, he wrote 99 theses and went to paste it at the door of Wittenberg in Germany. Because he realized that the true gospel had not been preached. You know how his turn came? He read that the just shall live by faith. It was no more works. Now in those days, it was so pathetic that if your sibling died, there was something called the seal of indulgences. I don't know whether you've heard of the seal of indulgences. If your siblings died and you are not sure whether they are making it in heaven, you have to just pay money to the church. You have to pay money. You have to pay, 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 pay. If the priest is satisfied, the priest will tell you that now, 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 your siblings are in purgatory. And you have to pay more. So you your siblings on earth, if they are merciful, merciful <laughs> unto you, they just have to pay so that you leave purgatory and you exit purgatory to paradise. I mean, this, I'm not making it up. It came in church history. It's amazing. So Luther said, he saw the truth that the just shall live by faith. And he protested, wrote 99 theses and protested and pasted it on the door, the door of Wittenberg in Germany. And the five major theses. <laughs> Solus Christus, Christ alone. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Solified, faith alone. 
Soli Dio Gloria, to the glory of God alone. That's the last one. Solus Gratia, grace alone. He protested, and out of the, his protest came the Protestant, who came out of the Catholic regime, and the Protestant movement began. Hallelujah. So they began for the first time in church history, they began to preach about justification by faith. Because everything was the doctrine of works, what you must do, what you must do. And we have been freed, but we are not totally free from that. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, then to the Gentiles. Why? For the reign is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. What is the gospel? Paul defines the gospel here as the revelation of the righteousness of God. The gospel is not the revelation of the sinfulness of men. The gospel is the revelation of the righteousness of God. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophet, even the righteousness which is by the faith of Jesus Christ upon all and unto all that believe, for there is no difference. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of the sins which are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, that now at this time, for the showing forth of his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him that has faith in Jesus Christ. Brethren, if you want to understand the gospel, understand the righteousness of God. In the New Testament, we are not saved. There's one thing to be saved mercifully. There's another thing to be saved righteously. For instance, if you are owing me, and I say, I go like, okay, you go. You're not going to pay anything. That's mercy. Then also, but you are owing me, and a brother come to pay for me. That is justice. Justice has been satisfied. So I have been saved righteously. Praise God. How are we saved in the New Testament? Righteously or mercifully? <laughs> now, of course, it's both. But you have to understand that God put everything on a righteous foundation. God knew you couldn't pay. So God provided you the ransom price so you can pay. <laughs> so the cross of Christ is the love of God paying ransom to the justice of God. <laughs> the justice has been satisfied. God's throne has been satisfied. God didn't sweep our sins under the carpet. It has been paid. We were at judicial variance against God. We were object of God's governmental displeasure. But a price had to be paid. Our debt was paid. In fact, the payment was an overpayment for all our sins put together. The sacrifice was an overpayment for our sins. That was due. It's Jesus. And understand that righteousness in the New Testament is a person. Your righteousness is not your conduct. Your righteousness is a person in the New Testament. 
We know it, but it's not really in our heart. Your conduct can fail, but your, your righteousness cannot fail because he's a person. You see God's wisdom? He's a person. On the cross, Christ was made son, but he had done no sin. Now you are made righteous. You had done no righteousness. <laughs> How was Christ made son? By receiving our sins. How are we made righteous? By receiving him as our righteousness. That's a powerful exchange. This is God's wisdom. On the cross, God treated Christ as, as S. He turned his back, treating Christ as S. But now he's treating us as him. If you know this light, hmm. you know how God sees you? God doesn't see you. He sees you in him. He doesn't see you outside of him. If I have a book, and I, I put a pen inside it and, and I seal the pen. On the cross, God put you in Christ. The pen is in the book. When I put the pen, when I bury the book, the pen is buried. When I bring it out of the ground, the pen, what, that history of the book now becomes the history of the pen. We were put in Christ. When he died, we died. When he was raised, we were raised. So now we are in him. So listen, in Romans 3.24, being justified freely, now, in English, justified is past tense, being justified. But in the Greek, it is present tense. We have been justified, yet it is present tense in Greek. You know what it means? Even right now as I'm speaking, you are righteous in God's eyes. Because it's present tense. The more you know this, the more you can bring forth the fruit of righteousness. That's God's wisdom. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Now, the next thing that um, the early church knew their rights and privileges in Christ. They knew their rights. So when they walk majestically, they walk with boldness. They walk without fear because they knew who they were in Christ. But we are not. The apostles, they knew all their boasting and glory was who they were in Christ and who Christ was in them, not in themselves. Listen, oh, this is the secret behind the power of our sicknesses and the power of the dead and the power of our situations. They knew their rights and privileges. They knew it. In John 14, 14, Jesus says, whatsoever you shall ask in my name, will I do? You know, you know what it says in the Greek? The word ask is itio. It's not ordinary action. It's demand and command. Whatever you will command in my name, that I will do. But in the original Greek, whatever you demand or command according to your rights and privileges, that I will do. That's a Greek. If you go deeper, you know what it says. What, whatever you command in my name, even if I don't have it, I'll create it for you. It's so profound. They knew it. Now, they knew the authority. We don't know. They lived without they were not demon conscious, they were not witchcraft conscious, they were not Satan conscious, but the present church, we are so afraid of Satan, we are afraid of demons, we are afraid of witchcraft, we are afraid of wizards, we are afraid of uh, native doctors, we are afraid of our own shadow, we are afraid of, afraid of cockroaches, we are afraid of midnight, we are afraid of height, we are afraid... <laughs> we are so afraid that we are afraid of fear. <laughs> and we are afraid of being afraid. They need the authority. 
That's the early church. They, no, we have authority over diseases, over sicknesses, over circumstances, over Satan. They knew it, but we don't know it. So sometimes we waste our... You go to a church, someone is using 30 minutes to, to bind Satan. You have wasted your time. You have used 30 minutes prayer. Instead of worshiping God for 30 minutes, you have used 30 minutes prayer to bind Satan. Why? Is he powerful like that? <laughs> you don't do that. You don't do that. Use speaking tongues, edify yourself, worship God. And use the, the, use the first one minute or 30 seconds to deal with him and go away. Authority. <laughs> Authority. <laughs> now, the first thing, what is the first sign that Jesus said will follow the believer? He said, in my name you cast out devils. Mark 16, 17. These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. Casting out devils, he's not saying you cast out the people who are possessed with devils. That's not the idea. The idea is that you have authority over demons. The first sign he ever spoke of before speaking about, talking about speaking with tongues, said, he said you cast out devils. That's the least. That's the least. But we, we are afraid. But the devil is afraid of us. It comes by revelation and light. Listen, Jesus says, submit yourself therefore unto God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The word flee, two posts, you know what it means? The word flee is between flying and, flying and running. <laughs> now, flee means to run with terror through any opening available. Now, the devil says that the weakest believer, the Bible says that, sorry, the saint, you resist the devil and he will flee. There is something in him that cannot make him withstand your presence. If the Bible says he will flee, he will flee. Jesus said, behold, I give unto you power. Luke 10, 19. In the Greek, it's not power. Behold, I give unto you exousia. Behold, I give unto you authority. Now, in the Greek, there's a definite article. Behold, I give unto you the authority to tread over serpents and scorpions and over all, not some, over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now, nothing shall by any means hurt you. There's a double negation in the Greek. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. There's a double negation. Nothing shall by no means, not in any way, by no means hurt you. Now, Jesus said it. He said, I'll give you authority to tread. Now look at the things when you are walking outside. How many of you are mindful of the things you walk over? You walk over the things you tread on. How many of you are mindful of it? Anytime the, the devil talks, sorry, the, the Bible describes Satan and his works. It describes something under our feet. Authority to tread over serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly, and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body brethren I wish you knew it I wish you knew it hallelujah we have authority we are kings and priests we have double speaking power they, they knew it they could rebuke things and they were rebuked. They walked. What was the difference between them and us? Light, revelation. They knew it. They knew it. You put Paul in prison and Silas, a modern day believer would have complained, oh Lord, why me? Why me, Lord? 
a modern day believer would have started binding witches, wizard, witchcraft, any ancestral curse against my life. Wondering, but they were just thanking God and praising God. <laughs> they knew they are right. When a serpent bit Paul, when they reached the island, the island of Morta, look, he knew his authority. He didn't, he didn't even respond by faith. He knew, he, the, he knew that the life in him is superior to, superior to Satan. He just took it. I know what you would have done. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I bind you. I bind you. And you are binding out of fear. Paul didn't even speak. He just shook it in the fire. He was just above it. He lived in the consciousness of the reality of the supernal or the supreme life that he had in Christ. Listen. And has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places. We are co-seated in his executive authority. I have been enthroned. Satan is dethroned. And I accept my throne right. <laughs> because I'm jointly seated with him. And the right and authority that is conferred over me, I accept it. And I execute it. And I speak it. We don't even know the oneness and the glory and the authority vested in the name Jesus. So we just say it, but we don't even know what we are saying. It's like you have an ATM card, and all you know is that what is on it is 300 Ghana City. So there are some things. Can you buy a refrigerator with 300 Ghana City? You, you cannot do that because you have not no idea the wealth of the eternities that is vested in that name. But if you had known that what is on that card is $1 billion, if you knew that omnipotence and the Godhead and the hallelujah, the power that be, the wealth of the eternities, all the powers of the Godhead is in that name. We have not used that name. Now, even the next thing I want to talk about briefly, my time is almost up, so let me speed up. What must also be restored, what must be fully restored again is the area of ministry. The area of ministry. Now, in the early church, the apostolic pattern was that in Ephesians 4.11, and he gives some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints. Now look at it here. Now this is the reason for the fivefold ministries. Now in the original Greek, there is no comma. In the original Greek, there is no comma. So it, it is for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. The reason we have the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, and the teacher is for the perfecting of the saints. So the fivefold ministers, they perfect the saints for the saints to do the work of the ministry. So who are those who do the work of the ministry? The saints. So the early church, when they began, they, everyone was in ministry. Everyone knew there was a task they had to fulfill. I'm not saying that everyone started his own church. That's not what ministry is. Ministry is beyond that. Praise God. Because we are a body. The ear must function, the nose must function, the ligament, the sinus, every part of you must function. You cannot, you cannot have a body where only 10% of the members are functioning. It's functioning. That's what's happening to the body of Christ now. Maybe only 20% are functioning. The rest are not, are just doing their own thing. They are dull and they are dormant. But everyone must function. So ministry is a training program. 
Many churches preach, few churches teach, and fewer churches train. The work here is to train, equipping people. It goes beyond preaching. It goes beyond teaching. It is training them, watching them practice what you have taught them, and giving them room. It is a nurturing process. It is spiritual parenting. That's a great work. This is the blueprint of the ministry. Yeah. The word perfecting is, the word here is catatismos. Now, they are different. Normally, the word perfect, perfect is teleosis, but here is catatismos. Now, catatismos, remember when Jesus met John, he was mending net. The Bible says he was mending his net, and the word is catatismos. So, for the mending of the saints, you know what it means? It's like a fish net. If you are catching fish on the sea and some of the parts are broken, what will happen? You will lose a lot, a lot of harvest. If the saints don't take their place in the service of God, we cannot win the world. We cannot win the world. And catatismos is a medical term for restoring a, dislo- a dislocated bone in the body. If a believer is not functioning according to what God called him to do, he's like a bone that is dislocated in the body. And that must be restored so you can, because all of us, we have an assignment from God. Whether you are an usher or you are made to sweep this place or you have the gifts of helps or the gifts of mercy or the gifts of leadership or the gift of service, we all have been called for something special. Hallelujah. Now, another thing with ministry was that the early church, when it came to ministry, they laid down their lives for it. What did I say? Jesus said in Matthew 9, 37, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are what? Few. Now, in the Greek, it's not laborers. It's the word workaholics. The harvest truly is plenteous, but the workaholics are few. I'm talking about those who just lay their lives for the work. That kind of sacrifice where they were willing to die for the service of God, that kind of enthusiasm and that kind of passion faded away with time. If you study church history, it faded away. Faded away. Where Apostle Paul would say, I will, I, will, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love, I love you, the less I be loved of you. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 15. And I, if I be offered... Upon the service and the sacrifices of your faith, I joy and will rejoice with you. Philippians 2 verse 17. If I be poured as libation. Now, Paul, Paul was willing to be poured out as libation, as offering, to pour his life just for the service of God. Thank you, Jesus. In Colossians 1.29, where unto I labor, striving, according to his working that worketh mightily in me. The grace which he bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but by the grace of God which was with me. First Corinthians 15 verse 10. He labored. He labored. You read Acts 19 in Amplified Version. He was in Asia. Every day Paul labored teaching the word from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. for two years constantly, daily for two years. These guys were laboring incessantly for the gospel. 
Because the gospel was everything. Because they saw the cross. It was in the light of the greatest, the ultimate sacrifice. And because of what they saw, they laid their lives. Obviously, they knew Paul called himself a slave, a bond slave. Brethren, we are also his slave. He are bought with a prize. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20. Therefore, glorify God with your body and with your spirit, which are God's. You are not yourself. A slave, a bond slave has no will. He has no choice in himself. You don't belong to you. You have no authority over your life. You have no authority over your life. The authority over your life doesn't belong to you. Hallelujah. And this is the same spirit that inflamed early Methodism, the Methodist movement. When the Methodism movement began, you know what they were doing? The lay preachers. These old men and old women will walk all night. They will walk from Saturday all night to go to their stations. And when they get to their stations, they will preach and do the work of the ministry. And they will labor in the ministry and they will walk back all night to their stations. And that was a spirit of Methodism. And that was a spirit that inflamed the Moravian movement. These guys, ah, they saw themselves as slaves because they wanted to reach the slaves in West Indies. The only way they could reach the slaves to preach the gospel to the slaves was to sell themselves as slaves. So they sold themselves as slaves so they could reach the slaves. Passion. <laughs> And when they were on the ships, on the high seas, they would give their jacket to these slaves to be kept warm. And they were freely dying and rejoicing. Through them, Wesley gave his life to Christ. Hallelujah. And these guys labored in season and out of season. In season and out of season. Acarios and eukarios. That means when it, the times are favorable, when the times are convenient, when the times are pleasurable, when you have money, when things are working, they labored. But when there is no money, when in times of difficulty and when nothing is work happening, they still live it for the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise God. And lastly, there is something the early church had that we don't have. Of course, it's happening in certain parts of the world. And it is the fellowship of his sufferings. The fellowship of his sufferings. It's something, when you mention sufferings, it's like, hey. But you see, the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, before we go, it's an opportunity to be invited to share in his sufferings. What an opportunity. Like Moses, esteeming the reproaches of Christ, the insults of Christ, the reproaches, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of a reward. Listen, it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but to suffer for his sake. Is that not so? In Romans 8, 17, If children then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. Is that not so? This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation. The Bible says, if we suffer with him, we shall reign with him. 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. If we suffer with him, we shall reign with him. Yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12. All that live godly. Now, the reason why there's not we are not suffering, two things. 
if we were to preach the true gospel, there will be suffering. But sometimes it depends on, sometimes it comes with time. And number two, if we're to live godly where we are, at least there should be some degree of challenges and suffering here and there. <laughs> Hallelujah. Praise God. The elders which are among you, I exhort, who also am an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that shall follow. That's what Peter said in 1 Peter 5 verse 1. Do you know that all the apostles, you know how they died? About six or seven of them were crucified. Paul was beheaded and put in the catacombs. John was fried like a fish in a cauldron of boiling oil, but he survived it. <laughs> he survived it. So they went through. For the first four centuries of the church, 30 million Christians were martyred for Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise God. Yeah. We are the sweepings of the world. We are the filth of the world. And as the offscoring of all things unto this present day. That's what we said. Say, woe unto you if all men speak well of you. For so did the fathers unto the prophets which were before you. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant. In prisons often. In stripes above measure. In prisons frequent. In death often. Of the Jews five times received I forty stripes. Save one. <laughs> Once I was beaten with stones. Thrice I was beaten with rot. A day and a night I've been in the deep. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. shipwreck. In perils of waters. In perils in the wilderness. In perils in the city. In perils among false brethren. In perils by my own countrymen. Who is weak? I'm not weak. Who is bent? The God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forevermore, know that I lie not. Beside those things which are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. In Damascus, the governor and the Aritas kept the city of the Damascenes in a garrison, desirous to apprehend me, and through a window in a basket was I let down and escaped through his hands. It is not expedient for me. That leads to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. These guys were branded for Christ. They suffered. For I think that God has set us forth the apostles last, as it were appointed unto death. They suffered for the gospel. Hallelujah. Now, there are two kinds of sufferings. Number one, Christ suffering for redemption. Number two, Christ suffering as our example. The first suffering, don't touch it. Only Christ suffered that kind of suffering. The second suffering is our example. First Peter 2 verse 21. For hearing also were ye called. Because Christ suffered for us, does it? Leaving as an example. So his suffering was an example. And if you want to understand this kind of suffering, read from verse 18. And continue. Uh -huh. When people insulted him, he didn't insult again and all that. I'm not saying you go and steal and they persecute you and they ship you and they go like you're suffering for Christ. But that's not what I'm talking about. For the gospel's sake. Now, suffering for Christ is not when, it's not you got an accident and you go like, oh, God is using an accident to discipline me. 
God, God doesn't discipline through accident. We should all have been dead by now. God doesn't do that. No, he doesn't do that. God can teach you a lot when you get accident. But he is not the causative agent. But even when it happened, he's still with you. And can teach you a lot. No. You shouldn't say, thieves broke through my house. God permitted it so that I can be humble. That's not the kind of suffering I'm talking about. I'm not talking about, oh, money is not coming. Poverty. God is using poverty to keep me humble. Mm -hmm. There are certain things that are redemptive. God didn't put the sickness and disease on you to keep you humble. No. God doesn't put sickness and disease on people. Interpret the Bible well. Sometimes in certain places in the Bible, it's as if God has done it. It's the style of writing. It is used in its permissive sense, not causative. God's not a causative agent. He's a permissive agent. He permits. Because in the Hebrew, what you have allowed is what you have done. So sometimes it is written as if God did it. But he doesn't do that. He allowed it. He permitted it. But the thing is that we should take the true gospel. I'm talking about persecution. When I talk about suffering, persecution. For the gospel's sake. Hallelujah. <laughs> yeah. And living right. And persecuted. Like in, in, in Rome, in, I think five, my time is up or something like that. I see zero, zero here. Now in Rome, I'm telling you, there were no, numerous gods that were worshipped. For instance, every profession had their own god. Every city had their own god. Every large home had their own god. Every sports event or any kind of event in the society, there were special gods that were venerated at that time. So wherever you get to, you are invited for a supper in a house. You have to pay respect and homage to the god that is there. Because if you don't do that, it was said that you, you will incur the wrath of the gods. So Christians lived in such an environment where every profession you are in, you have to salute the God. And Christians were not doing it. It is about persecution. I'm talking about living right. It will bring persecution. Hallelujah. Brethren, the apostles laid foundation. These are some of the things, but there are more. And we thank God we find ourselves in this generation. And thank God that we have access to the word of God. We are the blessed generation because we can stand on the shoulders of all that have gone ahead of us and see clearer and be available for what God is about to do. Now, there have been many, many restorations, but now God is putting all of them together for us. And we are in a better place. Praise God. So we can see, Father, we have a panoramic view, the past, the present, and see all God's workings in the past. Appreciate them and reproduce them in our era. You must be in the right place to do your part or to play your part in your day. That is how we can recover the apostolic blueprint that has faded away. You must do it right and be in the right place. And that is it. Hallelujah. Lift up your voice and bless his holy name. Thank you, Jesus. To him alone be glory. I spoke about the formation of the church the deformation, the reformation is left with the conformation of the church. Before the rapture of the church, all that the church must be or must manifest, it shall come to pass. 
all of the church, the church in her glory, we will see the glory of the church. We will see the sudden transformation of the church. And you must play your part. We will see the sudden transformation of the church. Dark days, so Arise, shine, for the light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people. Shark dark zish in the dark zish in the dark zish in the gags. Shibrak dig zish in the dark dark zash in the dark zag zaksha. Shabra zish in the dark zevzush in the dark zebuzo. Just be in the place where God can use you. Just be in the place where God can use you. Whatever is lost for, is for your recovery. And as I restore unto you the years the locust has eaten, and the palmerworm, and the cankerworm, and the caterpillar, by my great army which I send among you, there is a restoration. Take your place in authority, the authority He gave you to reign in life, to reign as kings, to reign as kings in life. The authority, the authority. The authority in his name that he gave us we rule and we reign and we subdue shark dabazash and bazam shabizab zabazab shabalabazam zemixak zabazush egadabas from today you are awakened to the relatives of the communion to the relatives of the communion you are awakened to the relatives of the breaking of bread and of the reading of the Bible and of the message and of your right and privilege of your authority of the ministry of participating in the sufferings of Christ thank you Lord thank you Lord in Jesus name the Father himself grant you to receive that spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. May the eyes of your understanding be enlightened. That you may know what is the hope of his calling. And what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saint. And the exceeding greatness of his power to us what who believe. According to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every other name that is named not only in this world but in that also which is to come and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head of all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Oh send the light and the truth. Jacques Davas, can you raise your hands towards heaven? Now let there be the the emission of light. Receive light. Lift up your hands as though you are receiving something. Receive light into scriptures. Receive light and revelation. In Jesus' name, you sit on the Bible and all of a sudden there is instant illumination by the Spirit of God. Receive light, all of you. Receive light. 
I see light coming to you. Maktaba, stoko, maktaba, stoko, maktaba, stoko. Light into the scriptures. Light, 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 light. Illumination, understanding, revelation. Shakta, stiksa, shepherd up. It is happening. There is a special illumination. It is happening. It is happening. The spirit of wisdom and revelation. The spirit of wisdom and revelation. That spirit of wisdom, it is coming. Makta, stikta, 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 takta. For their life to those that find them and health to all their flesh. Doctor, doctor, you will eat the word as honeycomb. Shakta, which is sweet to thy soul. Doctor, doctor, when thou hast found them, there shall be a reward. Receive grace and ability to find treasures in the world, hidden treasures in the world. Kabakata, you will search for them as for hidden treasures. Shakta, 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 shakta. Thank you, Jesus. Magda, 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 I declare you blessed in every way. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly. Your spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs>